0: Hey everybody, welcome to the back room, I'm Andy Ostroy.
1: I said to the doctor, it was Dr. Ronnie Jackson, I said, is there some kind of a test? Like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. They sacrifice every day for the furniture and future of their children. Tim Apple. Mike Pounds. I know words, I have the best words. Yosemites, Yosemites. Nambia. Thailand. Person, woman, MAN, CAMERA TV. THEY SAY, THAT'S AMAZING. HOW DID YOU DO THAT? I DO IT BECAUSE I HAVE, LIKE, A GOOD MEMORY, BECAUSE I'M COGNITIVELY THERE. I'M A VERY STABLE GENIUS. (laughs) THE DISINFECTANT, WHERE IT KNOCKS IT OUT IN A MINUTE. ONE MINUTE. AND IS THERE A WAY WE CAN DO SOMETHING LIKE THAT? Uh, BY INJECTION. I TESTED POSITIVELY TOWARD NEGATIVE, RIGHT?
0: For the record, that's not the old feeble guy, Joe Biden. That's Donald Trump, and we're going to talk about him in just a little bit. We have a great show for you today. We have Georgetown professor and counterterrorism and Middle East expert, Daniel Byman. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's get to our two big things. Uh, the first one is not Trump, although he is coming up. Of course, what would an episode of The Back Room be without talking about Donald Trump? The first, unfortunately, is the, ra- the rise in rabid anti-Semitism in this country in the last <laughs> four weeks since the uh, barbaric attack by Hamas on Israel. It is just out of control. I mean, I'm just astounded at the shit that I see on TV, on the Internet, things that are happening on college campuses. That mob riot at the uh, Dagestan airport in Russia was fucking terrifying. I mean, people are in various places of the world today. They're hunting down Jews.
2: The 60-plus Jewish stars in the 14th Arizona Mall.
0: In Paris, yeah, that was mm-hmm. fucking terrifying. Yeah, I mean, this is this is like Holocaust era shit that's happening, and it just it really makes you wonder if it is truly because of October seventh, or if this is just what we've all been living with, and it just erupted, erupted. I don't know. I think. Anti-Semitism is just something that we've all lived with in this country, and I think there are people that now believe they have a license to just be out in the open with it in the ways that we're seeing.
3: Yeah, I mean, these kinds of incidents Mm -hmm. unleash a lot of hate. I remember around towards the end of COVID when Trader Joe's was open again, and I saw people screaming at Asian people. I have friends who were Chinese who were actually terrified to take the subway because they were threatened. I Googled anti-Asian sentiment over the last three years and campuses, and there's hundreds of incidents of Asians not only being stabbed, beaten, Mm -hmm. hit, for obviously the incredibly irrational idea that somehow they all brought COVID here. So incidents like this bring out hate in people. Some of it is systemic. Anti-Semitism has certainly been here forever. Some of it is anti-Israel that is completely misguided as anti-Semitism when people are pulling down posters. When I've talked to someone who actually was doing something like that, they have this distorted idea that these posters represent propaganda for Israel, and they're in this anti-apartheid moment where they're fighting Israel as an apartheid genocide. the, the The
0: new excuse for pulling down posters, yeah. is that they're only being put up to bait and antagonize people because the hostages aren't here. Why are they putting up hostages, posters? It's just like to piss people off here.
2: How did that happen so quickly?
0: The, ripping down... The, the distortion. Well, because people need to excuse what they're doing because they're the, either that or they're total fucking hypocrites. I, I keep saying the same thing. The, the people who are, are protesting... Uh, about the, the the treatment of innocent Palestinian men, women, and children in Gaza who have who are not Hamas should not be targeted because of Hamas's actions. They are not the government. They're innocent. How is that any different than the innocent men, women, and children who are Israeli who are being held captive in Gaza who were not part of the Israeli government? There's no difference. But if you don't come up with some bullshit excuse, then you're just a fucking hypocrite. So they find these reasons, you know, Oh, it's just, you're just antagonizing us, or this is not where the hostages are.
3: Yeah. It's but insane. There's a broken logic. There's no reason for them to believe this, but this movement on campuses has been there. And then some of what's happening on campuses are just crazy people or just like what happened at Cornell. You had one, if you read the interview with his parents. He's basically this depressed student. He had no history of anti-Semitism. He had no history of violence, but he had to take two semesters off because he was super depressed, and suddenly he decides he's gonna leave four messages on the Greek site uh, for Cornell, which are obviously vile and disgusting and anti-Semitic, but again, it was someone who is on the edge and not a history of anti-Semitism in the situation. Yeah,
0: well, throughout history, Anti-Semitism, I think, exists in large part because of other people's failures. They just need someone to blame for their failures. They need someone to scapegoat. Hitler did it most infamously in Germany, you know, and it's easy to see how that can happen again here when you witness what has happened in the last four weeks. I say it over and over again, imagine if our economy was in recession deep recession or even depression. Imagine if we had 20, 25%, 30% unemployment. Imagine if we had 20, 25% interest rates. Imagine if we were in a state of economic chaos. I mean, just imagine if Trump or someone Trumpy became president again. It's not hard, it's not hard. I mean, I'm 64 years old and I cannot remember feeling this way ever. There's never been a point in in my life where I literally felt like, oh, shit, that that actually could happen in the United States. What happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s and 40s, that could happen here. I've never felt that way. I feel that way now.
2: I've never felt that way either. And um, when Jews cannot replace us was uh, something that we were watching um, during the Trump years. It was awful, but I was like, wow, this is just, you know, right-wing crazy nuts. Um, When it comes from your group, it's so much, I I don't know, it's visceral, it's painful, Mm -hmm. it's sad. I'm angry, but it's just, I don't even have the words to express how much despair I feel right now.
0: Yeah, well, there are are people who just seem broken because they are unable to unequivocally say, what happened on October 7th was 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 an act of barbarism, and it was absolutely unjustified. There was no justification for what happened on October 7th, and anyone who, who can't say that is broken, and I, I got to say to my fellow Jews, to your point, Jenna, I mean, shame the fuck on you if this is the time that you're deciding you can't do that, that you can't just say, wait, stop. You know, Israel may have a lot of problems. Its government may suck and be corrupt and say what you want about Netanyahu, which I agree with. But but now is not the time for, for Jew on Jew bashing. And then, and then there's the other extreme where people are actually supporting, so misguidedly supporting Hamas. Crazy.
2: That is crazy.
0: So that's where we're at. Certainly ain't going to fix it here in this room. Nope. Speaking of Bibi Netanyahu, he continues to duck any responsibility for what happened, the security failures on October 7th, which were massive, unlike people like IDF Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi, Military Intelligence Chief Aharon Haliva, Ronan Barr, who's director of the Shin Bet Intelligence Agency, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and his predecessor, Benny Gantz, and former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. These are all people in government and military in Israel who have accepted responsibility. And it's probably why 70 to 80% of Israelis want Netanyahu to resign once this war is over. He's he's toast as far as I'm concerned.
3: Therein lies the rub, as you just said, once this war is over, which is his incentive to keep this war going as long as he possibly can. And when I've talked to Israelis, I mean, he can, with uh, Israeli politics the way it is, drag on his uh, presidency. Uh, for years, literally. The war can drag on for years, and this incentivizes him to keep it going.
0: Well, that may be true. I'm, I'm not sure I subscribe to that type of radical thinking in terms of how nefarious he may be, but I will grant you that he is very Trumpy, and that's certainly something Trump is trying to do here, and so I, I, I'm not totally disagreeing with you. I, where, where I think it's different is that Israelis ain't Americans. And there may be a time where it's six, seven months from now, they may say, this motherfucker is, you know, perpetrating this war to save his own ass. And, uh, okay, now we want him gone before the war's over. Okay.
2: They're sending their children to war. Yeah. There are only so many people to go around.
0: Right. So, and look, it wasn't like he was Mr. Popularity before the war. Um, all right, let's move on to Jen's favorite subject, Donald Trump.
1: Yay. I call them the... J6 hostages,
0: not prisoners. I call them the hostages, what's happened. Man, it's a shame. That was Donald Trump at a rally last night in Houston, Texas. Uh, First, he played the national anthem, uh, sung by the January 6th prison choir, which he's done before. And now he's referring to the J6 rioters as hostages. These are the people who stormed the Capitol violently, beat the shit out of cops, Pissed and shit all over the place, stole property, destroyed property, and they're in prison. Not because of that. They're in prison because they're hostages. Hostages. You know, just like the Israeli men, women, and children who are being held captive in Gaza. What a week to conflate the hostage situation. January 6th, insurrectionists, Jews being held in Gaza. I mean... I say this all the time. He's just such a fucking sociopath. He's tone deaf. This is a guy who wants to pardon these people if he becomes president again. Unleash them back into society.
2: He's an evil genius. It's brilliant, brilliant,
3: actually. That speech wasn't for us. No, Uh, it was not. His base loves it, and that's who he's talking to.
0: Um, Big news this week. The Trump boys went to court. And they testified in the New York state civil fraud trial. And uh, let me encapsulate for you the, their testimony. I'm an idiot. I didn't know what was going on. I relied on our accountants and our lawyers. That's pretty much just it. I just saved you guys, like if you wanted to read like eight hours of transcripts, I just save you the time. Mattie, you, did, you, I did, did you left something <laughs> out.
3: You forgot that Eric is a oh, contractor who pours cement. He pours cement,
0: which okay. So that's another crime. <laughs> That's like, okay, so how much are you being paid to, sub, to pour cement? like that? He's never poured cement in his life. He has nothing to do with cement. Here's the thing about the civil trial in New York. It's over. It's already over. <laughs> the judge decided there was fraud, number one. Number two, what these fucking lunatics don't seem to understand is there's no jury. There's no jury to play to. There's a judge. That person has already determined that there's fraud. All this is about is the extent of the consequence, the financial consequences, the business consequence. So by sitting there and lying and playing stupid to the only person who's going to be deciding your fate, it's just a boneheaded decision.
3: It's even worse than being stupid. I mean, could you imagine any executive or trustee of a corporation whose defense of breaking the law was they signed everything never looked at it and it was just like oh it was put in front of me so i signed it
0: they just think that if they say it it just becomes true because they guess they, they watch daddy and they see how he's an evil genius and he's convinced millions and millions of people and and in their stupidity in their complete lack of anything they have nothing but they think they're daddy
3: they're dumber than daddy
0: oh they're daddy's not dumb mm-hmm. Daddy Daddy plays dumb, and then uh, just for shits and giggles, let's play this clip.
1: Viktor Orban. Did anyone ever hear of him? He's probably like one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world, and uh, he—he's the leader of right. He's the leader of Turkey. We are very close to World War III, and we will prevent it. I know all the players. I know the players. I know the good ones, the bad ones, the weak ones. You know, there's a very powerful player, Viktor Orban. Did anybody ever hear of Viktor Orban? He's the head of Hungary. Hungry fronts on both Ukraine and Russia. Victor, Victor Orban.
0: <laughs> Somebody should do a mashup of, of Trump and Jerry Lewis. Lady
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>. Orban.
0: <laughs> and I thought he says hungry. Hungry hungry he's hungry for for some ha- 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 hamas 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 the terrorist organization hamas and the uh, sister
3: organization tabuli or was only hungry after he said turkey so he's he's a little you, <laughs> you know. got to stop he's getting close the baba ganoushes okay.
0: in syria all right let's get to our winners and losers
2: My winner, United Auto Workers and Labor in general. My loser, rampant, excessive, worldwide anti-Semitism.
3: My loser is the overpaid middleman, the National Association of Realtors who just lost a $1.8 billion antitrust case because they've engaged in a multi-billion dollar conspiracy to inflate the cost of broker commissions. And my winner is, inverse, the home buyer.
0: My winner, evil, which seems to have the upper hand these days all over the world. My loser, the idiot twins, Donnie Jr. and Eric Trump, for literally proving that they're truly, at best, just a couple of incompetent nepomorons. and at worst, shameless, blatant, corrupt liars. That brings us to the weekly rant. Donald Trump, he's not a Republican. He's not a conservative. The truth is, he couldn't give a flying fuck about issues of concern to traditional conservatives and the Christian right. He only cares about one thing, himself, and feeding his rapacious insatiable appetite for attention, money, and absolute power. What Trump is, is a fascist, a dictator wannabe whose sole motivation is to shut down the criminal cases against him and become president for life, like the foreign strongmen of his fantasies. And this is certain. He continues to pose the greatest threat to our democracy since our founding 247 years ago, which is why it's more shocking and unfathomable than ever that true conservatives, evangelicals, could still be pledging undying fealty to this dangerous monster even after two impeachments, four indictments, 71 felony counts, rape, and his relentless attacks on the Constitution and every single American institution, norm, and boundary. Trump has no core belief system. He couldn't care less about abortion, faith, family values, law and order, Second Amendment, free trade, small government, national security, and other issues that conservatives claim matter greatly to them. To the contrary, he's a pathologically lying, sexually promiscuous, serial-sitting, corrupt traitor who, as a fraudulent businessman, never met a government handout he didn't like. But make no mistake, the Republican Party is firmly his. And it's nothing short of astonishing how swiftly and thoroughly he's reshaped and destroyed it. How he's enticed Republicans to abandon every single principle that they've ever had in order to protect and defend someone who'd never return even an ounce of that loyalty and who will eventually attempt to destroy them the nanosecond they stop kissing his ass. So here we are, November 2023. The clock is ticking. It's now a race against time. Desperately hoping the rule of law slaps the shit out of him before next November's election. Hoping the judicial system, the courts, reinforce to him and to us that no one is above the law. Because if it fails, the democracy we've come to love is done. All right, it's time for Daniel Byman. He is a professor and vice dean at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and the director of the security studies program there and a senior fellow with the Transnational Threats Project at Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a part-time senior advisor to the Department of State as part of the International Security Advisory Board, and a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, as well as a professional staff member with both the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States, also known as the 9-11 Commission, and the joint 9-11 inquiry staff of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. He's written widely on a range of topics related to terrorism, insurgency, intelligence, social media, artificial intelligence, and the Middle East. He is the author of nine books, and his most recent is Spreading Hate, The White Power Movement Goes Global. Professor, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk with you about all the things that are happening in the news right now, Israel, anti-Semitism, the Middle East in general terrorism. But my first question to you is, what keeps you up at night right now? What are you most concerned
4: about? I am most concerned about two things. Uh, The first is that there seems to be no long-term plan on the Israeli side. Their goal is to hit Hamas hard, but it's a little unclear what that means. And it's unclear to me, at least, what they plan to do with Gaza after two weeks, two months, however long they plan to stay. The second thing I'm concerned about is that this is going to broaden into a regional war. We have um, a limited clash going on between Israel and Hezbollah in neighboring Lebanon. We have groups like the Houthis in Yemen. We have attacks from Iraqi groups on U.S. targets. And all of this has remained limited. I don't want to overstate this, but the potential for something much greater, much deadlier much more earth shaking is definitely there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So those are really valid points and concerns. What do you say to the people who say never again? Never again, that has to mean something. What are Israel's options if not doing what it's doing now? How do they achieve that end of protecting its people, making sure that there's never again this kind of attack, not just by Hamas, within Israel, but by any terrorist organization or any Arab country for, for that matter.
4: Uh, this is the key question to me, where understandably any government, obviously including the Israeli government, but any government suffering such a horrific attack would want to be able to assure its citizens that this will never occur again. Um, and having Hamas be next door in Gaza always having the potential to build up, even if Israel temporarily weakens it, is not something that any Israeli government can accept. However, there's a broader question of how Israel can prevent Hamas from staying in power, and if it does topple it temporarily, how it can prevent it from regrowing, and there's no good answer to it. We don't have someone who wants to come in and rule Gaza, and if no one else comes into rule Gaza, Hamas will simply regrow, even if most of its leaders are killed or arrested. So, the never again question is going to haunt its Israeli leaders, I think, for years to come. So, then ha- where does this go? We don't know. Right now, Israel is determined to hit Hamas hard, and this is manifested in part by targeting Hamas and infrastructure in Gaza, and also targeting Hamas leaders. Uh, several have been killed already. Fighters have been killed. And the broader infrastructure of Gaza, including the civilian infrastructure, is being destroyed. But that's a short-term answer, right? All this can regrow in the years to come. And Israeli leaders know that. Uh, historically, Prime minister Netanyahu was very reluctant to go into Gaza on the ground and otherwise do sustained operations because he knew there was no good answer. Uh, Politically, it's impossible for him. It's impossible for any Israeli leader to do nothing now. But I think part of the reason that Israel has not launched an all-out ground invasion, but so far has done a more limited one, is because Israeli security leaders know that there are good answers to any of the long-term questions.
0: And what's your thinking on a ceasefire or the humanitarian pause? And wasn't there a ceasefire? in place on October sixth.
4: So there's a question of how do you, you target Gaza, yet ensure that the you know, billions of people who live there do not suffer from waterborne diseases, do not starve to death, do not otherwise, you know, die in huge numbers. You know, and this includes many, many innocent people. And part of that is ensuring electricity functions on the strip and other basic services um, and that food and water get in. And so one question is, can that happen while bombing is ongoing? Are you able to establish networks that allow humanitarian supplies in that allow the wounded to exit um, while still conducting a military campaign? And that's kind of the logic of a pause to make sure those structures are in place. Um, More broadly, um, before October 7th, there was an on-and-off ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. And Hamas takes power on the Strip, most, I'll say, definitively in 2007. And there were several, many wars fought between Hamas and Israel, but also many years of relative calm. And Israeli leaders expected that this would be the pattern, that they'd mostly have calm. There would be occasional flare-ups, occasional limited rocket and missile attacks. But nothing more than that. So October 7th is a dramatic departure from all this history. Mm -hmm. There are
0: people who say, why should there be a ceasefire if there kind of was a ceasefire and it was violated? And also, with regard to humanitarian aid, talk about fuel. Hospitals in Gaza need fuel. But, you know, there's suspicion that the fuel that goes into Gaza is going to be taken by Hamas because it needs to fuel generators to light the tunnel system and all that. So when you think about the fact that we are dealing not with a legit government that has its own true humanitarian concerns, but we're dealing with a barbaric terrorist organization, how are we to trust anything of a humanitarian nature that finally does make its way into uh, Gaza? And will it go to the people that desperately need it and who it's intended for? Or will it just be used to further
4: future attacks on Israel? The answer is some of both. So if it goes into Gaza, whether it's fuel or medicine or whatever it is, um, especially if there's international monitoring, uh, then at least some of it will go to ordinary Gazans who are struggling for their lives and the lives of their family. Um, However, Hamas has a very broad presence in Gaza. It controls things on the ground. Um, a lot of the hospitals and public works are controlled by Hamas. So there's no question that at least some of what goes into Gaza will go to Hamas and some of that will be direct and some of that will be indirect. Um, this has always been a problem, uh, when civilized countries fight groups that use terrorism and hide behind civilians, that they are deliberately endangering their own people and daring the United States in cases in Iraq. Um, in Israel, here to kill their own people and then blaming Israel in this case for the killing, right? When, of course, Hamas bears the ultimate responsibility. But this to me is what separates civilized countries from groups like Hamas, which is their willingness to understand that there are civilians on the other side and their own targeting needs to recognize that even as they pursue military objectives. And that does have cause, right? It would be a meaningless. Gesture it simply meant that Israel um, made no changes and there are risks to Israeli soldiers. It does make Hamas stronger, but the mass killing through starvation, through a lack of medical care of civilians is unacceptable. And I also think it's going to hurt Israel. I think that Israel's reputation has long been challenged for a variety of reasons. Some, it might be legitimate and many false and illegitimate. But when you have this significant death on the civilian side, it hurts the impression of Israel around the world. And this is something that Israel needs to guard against, even though, again, the ultimate responsibility still lies with Hamas. Mm-hmm.
0: This is why it makes it a very complicated and complex subject. And if you have any sense of humanity and decency, you don't like to see anybody get killed. You don't like to see any children suffer. The flip side to that is Israel is fighting a war against people who don't follow the rules of war, the rules of distinction, they do hide and operate behind their own people, and you allow them to do that, at the end of the day, doesn't that just weaken the entire world? Doesn't that say to our enemies, all they need to do is just wage an attack and then go hide behind people, and the other side has to go, oops, you got me, I can't come after you.
4: That Doesn't that just change everything? So... Yes and no, right? So there's a a degree question, right? It's one thing to say that um, Hamas leaders are hiding your hospital, and therefore, if um, Israel, you know, should never bomb the hospital because that would cause damage. And that's a that's a genuine debate. And these questions are things that, in the U.S. context, military lawyers spend a huge amount of time. Um, in part, again, because it has political consequences, as well as legal consequences. But that's different from saying, um, "Look, here's you know huge numbers of people. We're going to deny them people, right?" So I think that Israel can appropriately um, target Hamas leaders, and at times, again, because Hamas has co-located military and civilian sites, that's going to lead to civilian death and destruction of civilian facilities, and that's simply part of it, right? Again, this is Hamas's responsibility, but it's also of the ugly nature of this kind of war. Uh, But it's not an absolute thing. It doesn't mean that Israel can do mass bombing in civilian areas in the hope of finding a military leader or two. They need to have military reason for what they're doing. And um, when they go forward, that often will entail significant risk to civilians. And that is part of war. And actually, the laws of war do justify that as long as there's a military objective. But that's quite different than more blanket punishment. Mm -hmm.
0: I was watching CNN this week, I think it was CNN, or maybe it was MSNBC, and they had former General Mark Hurtling on, and he was talking about the refugee camp bombings. This was after the second one. Now, of course, after the first one, there was a lot of condemnation of Israel. Uh, How could you do this? And then there was another bombing. And so he was saying, from a militaristic standpoint, in his experience, that if Israel went in after the initial condemnation and did it again, they must have such incredible intelligence that that particular area is housing not just military installations you know uh, Hamas installations but senior leadership, and that they made a calculated decision that that 's where
4: they have to go, even knowing the collateral damage. What the general said seems very reasonable to me um. In the past, Israel has weighed the probability that there are high enough targets against civilian harm. Um, I suspect the calculus and the ratios are different this time, given the tremendous scale of the Hamas attack on October 7th, that some of the hesitation Israel might've had in the past about certain targets is simply not there this time. But yes, I don't think Israel is likely to simply bomb a refugee camp indiscriminately, acting are going after particular targets. um, To be clear though, I don't know. Right. Obviously, I don't know the intelligence. I don't know the decision making, but based on past patterns, um, Israel would only be doing this if it thought there was a the high probability that there were significant military targets there. And, and therein
0: lies the, the the whole rub about mis, you know information, misinformation. Like the average person at home is not assessing that particular situation the way someone like General Hurtling has done, and other people have done. Folks like you have done, which makes it so complicated because you can't just see a soundbite somewhere and then draw a conclusion, you know, you're bad, you're good, you know, that kind of thing. And we're seeing so much of that. You recently said something uh, uh, that the world can't solve the Israeli Hamas war without Egypt. What exactly
4: does that mean? So Egypt is important both due to geography and due to politics. So Egypt, of course, is right next door to Gaza, the only crossing into Gaza except from Israeli territory. Um, comes from Egypt, uh, in terms of smuggling weapons and people into Gaza, uh, if that happens on through the land, it's going to be through Egypt. If you want to send humanitarian aid into Gaza, it's going to happen through Egypt. If you want uh, people to flee Gaza and avoid a war zone, they're going to go to Egypt. Um, so simply by geography, Egypt matters tremendously. Um, but it also matters politically. Egypt is a leading Arab power. Um, In the past, it's played a role negotiating between Israel and Hamas and bringing about previous ceasefire, And it has some degree of credibility among Arab audiences. And if there is to be some sort of political um, solution at the end of this, Egypt's going to be part of it. And part of that's, again, just necessity because it's there, but also because it's one of the few actors that can credibly talk to both sides.
0: And do you see that happening? Do you see Egypt becoming a major part of this conflict in the ways that you're hoping? Uh,
4: um, I do, uh, so Egypt has a lot of incentives to, to do so. Um, you know, part of it is Egypt has a lot of fears, So Egypt historically, or in recent years, I should say has been very hostile to, uh, political Islamist organizations in Egypt itself, um, organizations that are ideological, ideologically very similar to Hamas. So it's not eager for Hamas victory for its own political reasons. Um, Egypt also has a low level insurgency in the Sinai area, right next door to Gaza. And it doesn't want fighters or uh, weapons going in and out. Because it's just going to make its own problems. Um, But Egypt is also conscious of past Palestinian history and the broad Arab support uh, for the Palestinian cause, and it doesn't want to be seen as being Israel's handmaid in any military operation or occupation. That would be bad for politically. Um, and it is worried that um, if it allows large numbers of refugees, then they might never go back. And this would be something that has echoes in Palestinian history. And Egypt can very caution them and, and frankly doesn't want large numbers of refugees in any event. Um, so it has a lot of interest in doing all this. Um, and then if you say, hey, maybe they'll get some more um, development aid or other things kind of under the table to encourage them to play a constructive role. And they'll obviously improve their own stature um, by becoming a major partner in negotiation. Um, I think both their own fears and concerns and their own aspirations lead them to want to play a significant role. hmm
0: Uh, I want to ask you about anti-Semitism. I don't know your background, but I'm sitting here in a room with three Jews, myself included, one of whom is your former student, Gabe Mahmood's mom, my co-producer, Jen, uh, Maddie Rosenberg, my co-producer and engineer. We've not seen this kind of anti-Semitism in this country, I I don't think, ever. Just blatantly out in the open on college campuses, out on the streets. I live in Manhattan. I mean, there are people in Manhattan ripping down the hostage posters. I mean... Jews can't get sympathy in Manhattan. I mean, where else are we going to go? Right. Are you shocked by what you're seeing?
4: I would say I'm shocked. Um, I'm, I am disappointed, but I'm not shocked. Uh, we've seen two developments that have been occurring, um, over the long term. Uh, one is that there has been broader and broader condemnation of Israel, and this is you know, putting aside October 7th, this is uh, largely in regard to Israeli policies towards the Palestinians, especially in the West Bank. And for people who don't follow the news closely, there's kind of a broader Israel mistreats the Palestinians in the West Bank. And uh, to be clear, I have my own, I think, quite pointed criticism of Israeli policy there with therefore what Hamas did in Gaza is acceptable, which is to me, you know, false and, and offensive. Um. And so there's that broader perception. Um, And there's also a change among younger people who identify as progressive in attitudes towards Israel, there used to be much stronger bipartisan support for Israel, Um, and now it's gotten to the point where it's it's actually become rather odd where on the Republican side, the most fervent supporters are actually part of the U.S. evangelical community Um, and their attitude in in some ways, kind of Israel, right? or rock where they're they're utterly uncritical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the Democratic side, you have a coalition of different groups that often see themselves as identifying with marginalized communities, with victims and put Palestinians in that camp. And again, to your earlier point, for people who don't follow the news closely, I think there's a lot of conflation on um, Israel has policies that are bad for Palestinians. Therefore, anything done in response is justified, even large scale, horrific murder. Mm-hmm.
0: As a as a uh, university professor, by the way, my son got his master's degree at Georgetown, so I'm quite familiar with the school. As a university professor, do you feel that students today, especially in the last month, with the passion and the frustration and the anger that is fueling a lot of the protests, would you say they are fully aware of the facts,
4: the history, the complexities? Uh, so yes and no. Uh, so you know clearly, you know most 20 year olds, and I put myself in this category when I was 20, you know, think they know a lot more than they do, right? I was, I was never as smart as I was when I was uh, 20 years old. So um, yes, people have very strong opinions and they're often not as well informed as they should be. And, you know, I'm, I'm forgiving because I was that way as well. Um, and they also have strong passions. And I'm usually a fan of strong passion. right now. I'm going to disagree with the particulars of many strong passions. But, you know, one of my constant fears is that young people become politically disengaged. And I want them to care about their country, their neighborhood, and also the world. And I think that on balance is very good. Um, but I think this puts an extra burden on university, right? Our, our function is education. And if we are saying that, you know, students need to be more informed to make better judgments about how to view current events, well, we're the ones to do it right? That's, that's on faculty, that's on administration. Um, I'm pleased at Georgetown. There have been you know, many events, which have been very polite about listening to one another. I'm not going to say they agree. They certainly don't. But there has been a lot of, i think, productive back and forth that I think made everyone involved smarter. But I know in many universities, um, it's less of that, right? That sometimes there's monolithic opinions, that actually, in my view, go against the very spirit of what a university is supposed to be, which is, you know, whatever you believe, you're pushed in that belief. And you can end up in the same place, but your views will be more considered, more intelligent, they'll be tested. And that's how I see the world of the university. And I hope other universities embrace this as well. Hmm.
0: Do you see it as dangerous at all? What's what's going on? I mean, I had one young person who I know who responded to someone who responded to a post of mine on social media and she said something like Hamas has to be destroyed because they're animals and then the young person weighed in and said you should not use the term animals because that's dehumanizing and that's what Hitler did to the Jews in Nazi Germany and I was like okay time out (laughs) she's referring to a barbaric terrorist organization not innocent people who were just going about their business and got annihilated simply because they were Jews. And I took a step back and I was like, my God, is this the kind of shit that just is fueling so many young people today? Like they just have no idea what the fuck
4: they're talking about. So I'll I'll step on the soapbox of mine, if you'll forgive me. Um, mm-hmm. This to me is a, a problem with kind of discourse by social media, where it's hard for Um, I think most people, myself included, to convey a complexity in, you know, 140 characters, right? And so when I am trying to communicate, I find that social media in a way is incredibly effective. You can reach large numbers of people. Uh, Things can spread very widely. Um, But at the same time, you know, that's where nuance goes to die. Uh, And as we have a younger generation that engages more via social media, um, not just with people my age, but with one another, right? I actually think that is a bad way for people to learn. I think it's a bad way for political conversations to happen. There are advantages to it. I don't want to make it sound like it's entirely bad, but it means that you know people either pounce on particular words like when you're having a back and forth um, or they take stuff out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um or you know, opinions that again, let's go back to twenty year olds maybe not knowing everything they think they know. Um, you know, it also leads to, you know, people expressing stupid opinions um that later on they'll change mm-hmm. but never quite go away. And you know, again, I, I don't particularly want someone to quote back my own opinions when I was twenty years old at me today. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm sympathetic that younger people will say things that are not fully thought out, as I've certainly done my share even today. So um, I worry, worry about this, but I worry about this in the broader context, not of Israel Hamas, but of how political discourse is being shaped by media.
0: I agree with that. I just, I have concerns about the explosive nature of this particular conflict and the fact that it, it's being exacerbated unnecessarily just by this kind of disinformation or misinformation or misguided opinions that spread like wildfire. And now you, you see it all over the place and to see so many young people, so angry, people who are ripping down hostage posters and the folks who say to them, why are you doing it? And and the answers they give, it's like, my God, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. Let's talk for a m- moment or two about the security failure, like how October 7th happened. In your opinion,
4: what happened? It's an epic failure. So it, it's unquestionably a failure. And I, again, I want be careful and be, you know, clear. Um, I certainly did not predict it, right? I've been watching Israel Gaza for for many years, and I certainly did not see this coming. Uh, so, there are several kind of overlapping failures going on, in my view. Um, one is a assumption that may have undergirded intelligence, and certainly undergirded Israeli policy, that Hamas is contained. that the kind of mix of limited military force and permits to work in Israel uh, Mm -hmm. meant that Hamas was largely accepting of the status quo and any Hamas reaction would be limited violence, not hostile violence. Um, With that in mind, there is a massive failure of Israeli collection where Hamas uh, would have had to snuggle huge amounts of weaponry into Gaza to plan this operation for years, to train that spider, i um, all under the eye of Israeli intelligence, and that was not detected. Um, politically, Israel was focused elsewhere. It was focused on the West bank. It was focused on Lebanon. It was focused on divisions within Israel. So there were lots of factors here that I'm guessing. Yeah, I want to stress the word guess. Shaped Israel's failure to disrupt this attack.
0: What's the consequence of this? Is Netanyahu's future extremely at risk now in terms of his leadership, his staying in power?
4: Uh, I would guess that, but anyone who counts Netanyahu out has not been paying attention to Israeli politics for the last mm-hmm. 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right? He's a remarkable political survivor and very effective politician. So my instinct is that, you know, combined with his unpopularity before this attack, that, yes, this will be very harmful to them. Um, I would stress for um, listeners who may be opposed to that Yahoo and see him as too conservative for their vision of Israel. Um, in my view, Israel is likely to grow more conservative after this attack. I think any semblance of um, a political left that says the appropriate policy towards the Palestinians are peace negotiations that the policies in the West Bank and Gaza should be gentler due to humanitarian consideration, I think that is completely discredited due to the October 7th attack. So Netanyahu himself may be hurt by this, and I I think he is, but I think the broader Israeli political right is likely to grow stronger. Mm -hmm.
0: And the emergency coalition that was put together with Benny Gantz Where is that today? We don't really hear much about that. We heard a lot about it when it was formed and it was viewed very positively. Has that been effective? So it's effective
4: in the sense of it gives Netanyahu some political cover for the military operation in Gaza, which is very high risk. We may see significant Israeli casualties. And as we discussed earlier, um, it's going to be hard for that operation to succeed to the fullest extent to destroy Hamas. And so by bringing in opposition figures, especially ones with military experience, the blame, if you will, is shared at least to some, degree. um, conversely though, he's bringing in some of the people who are likely to take his place. Mm-hmm. So it's also high-risk for Netanyahu in that these people now have credibility and can more easily make a transition to taking his job. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there a difference between Hamas and other terrorist organizations in the region, you know, uh, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, do they operate differently? And has this past four weeks, has that empowered them and bring them into the mix in a way they weren't on October 6th?
4: These groups all differ um, in a variety of ways. I would say that Hezbollah and Islam Jihad, historically, have had much closer relations with Iran mm-hmm. than Hamas. Um, what I would say about Hamas and Hezbollah is they're both quasi-government.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Right? So we could talk about Hamas as a terrorist group, which is correct. But before October 7th, probably 95% of what it did was focused on governing Gaza. right? It's a terrorist group that picks up the trash and mm-hmm. has a department of motor vehicles. Um, And Hezbollah has state-like features as well, but Islam Jihad does not. Um, And they also differ in how regional they are. So Hezbollah has worked with Iran in Yemen, has worked with Iran in Iraq, has fought part of the Syrian civil war, while Hamas focused exclusively on Israel. So there is variation, but it does strengthen the overall idea of what these groups would call resistance. They're saying, look, the way you get Israel or the United States or anyone to do anything is not by making concessions, not by talking reasonably, by fighting. Mm-hmm. And Hamas' attack electrified this broader radical community and gives it more credibility and standards, the image that Israel is trying to project that it's invulnerable, and that is a major Hamas accomplishment. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's shift for a minute. Your, your latest book is called Spreading Hate, The White Power Movement Goes Global. Obviously, since Trump's emergence into the national political scene in in 2015, things in this country have gone bonkers in terms of domestic terrorism and white nationalism, white supremacy. What is the biggest threat to you right now with regard to domestic
4: terrorism? So we've seen over the years, and especially since President Trump emerged as um, as a major political force, we've seen a mixing of the right-wing and anti-government extremist movements, where they become more and more intertwined as process began decades ago, but it really accelerated. Uh, and it has lots of weird permutations, right? So it's very hard to speak definitively of what this movement even stands for today, where some of it is vehemently pro-Trump and some thinks he doesn't go far enough. Some of it is, you know, anti-Semitic in focused, while others focus on hating Muslims or hating black people or hating gay people. So it's extremely broad and it's very much more of a network than a group. The actual organized entities are rather weak, but there are lots of people who believe this stuff and a lot of this is communicated online Um, and in the United States, they've been responsible for more um, death than uh, groups like ISIS or the Islamic State or their followers since 9-11. Um, And they also have a political role where, in contrast to the jihadist movement, which had virtually no support among American Muslims, uh, if we talk about an anti-immigrant agenda, if we talk about general racism or an anti-gay agenda, there are echoes in the broader political mainstream. And part of the purpose of terrorism, of course, is to have a broader political and policy effect that when you have ties to broader political debate, it makes the job easier.
0: As a government, are we devoting enough resources to this? And are we making any progress? Uh, Certainly things are better. It looks like they're better than when Trump was in office. But uh, are we really tackling the bigger issue?
4: So uh, President Biden has put a lot more resources into this. And part of that is simply a legacy of the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, where that was a massive investigation. Uh, Many people were arrested and tried. And so... Both some of the networks were hit pretty hard by these arrests, but also many of the others simply laid low. They realized that if they stuck their head up, they would be vulnerable to being detected and disrupted. So there's been progress on the law enforcement front. Um, In general, there's been progress on the resourcing front where the federal government in particular is more focused on it, Uh, but we still have a very long way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one thing I would stress is um, it used to be that political leaders of both parties turn their backs on these people, right? So when David Duke, the Klansman, runs for governor and senator at different times in Louisiana, um, President Reagan, President uh, George, uh, Herbert Walker Bush, um, openly campaign against them. They say, don't vote for this guy, right? And you're not seeing that sort of rejection by more mainstream politicians to the extent uh, they should be doing it. And what we want is a very, very bright line between, you know, legitimate questions about the degree of gun ownership, which I think Americans can disagree on, um, and people who, you know, say, let's shoot anyone who even talks about gun control. Right. you want to be able to draw those lines between the kind of crazies who embrace violence um and legitimate political discourse on both sides of the spectrum. And we've gotten worse in that very important dimension. Mm-hmm.
0: And so sticking with America for a second, and you have an extensive background working on 9 and 11 commissions and in the House and the Senate, there's a lot of talk about, like, let's not make the same mistakes in Israel that we made with Iraq and Afghanistan and going after al-Qaeda and ISIS. What is your take on where those two groups are today effectively and whether or not they still pose any real threat? to America and and Americans, and in retrospect, if we have not had a major terrorist attack in this country since 9-11, did I mean, it wasn't pretty, but did our policies work to the effect that we wanted them to, to keep our, our people safe?
4: So, in my view, both Al Qaeda and the Islamic State have been hit very hard. Uh, and. In both cases, it was a sustained campaign. It mixed military force, a lot of intelligence efforts, better homeland defenses. A lot of it was done through US allies, especially in the Middle East, but really around the world. Um, and this is a big success. And it's multiple administrations, right? It's the Bush administration, the Obama administration, Trump administration, Biden administration, right? So this is something that I think Americans, uh, regardless of political belief, can feel um, proud of. Um, there are a couple caveats. I think at times we went to chase monsters where we didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Right? So the invasion of Iraq, obviously in hindsight, um, was a tremendous misstep and was not necessary um in terms of fighting terrorism. Um and there are questions of how strong these groups are, especially in the United States, where um I think investigation after investigation has shown that despite many fears, they've been very weak. So the direct threat to the United States was limited, especially. After the U.S. was able to target their havens and stop these organizations from having a strong presence abroad, so I would say that this overall is a tremendous success. But but the caveat is they're not gone, Mm -hmm. and part of that success involves vigilance, right? And involves you know intelligence collection to avoid mistakes like what Israel appears to have made. It involves homeland defenses to make sure that if people try to do bad things, they're detected and caught and stopped. It at times may involve military action overseas if these groups try to develop bases to target the United States. So it's not the sort of thing where you say, "Hey, we did a good job; everyone retire." You say, "Hey, we did a good job. Make sure everyone shows up for work tomorrow, because we have to keep doing a good job uh, for years to come." Mm-hmm.
0: And on some level, can can the same be said? You know, that same. It's not pretty. It was costly. It was ugly at times, but it worked. Could could that be said about what's happening in the Middle East right now with with the uh, Israeli-Hamas conflict? That ultimately, they can have success, but it sure as hell is going to be ugly. It sure as hell hell is going to be costly,
4: but it could work? Uh, Maybe. And this goes back to what we discussed at the very beginning Mm -hmm. um, of this show, which Is is that Hamas is next door to Israel. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more unclear what's going to take its place. So, you know, this is probably a bad analogy, but imagine the Taliban's Afghanistan you know, was where Mexico is, mm-hmm. right? And if the United States said, you know, we're we're done with Afghanistan. We're just going to leave it the height, the price is too high. I think Americans would legitimately worry that mm-hmm. simply due to geography, the threat would continue. And so I think, you know, the United States has a tremendous advantage in that it's separated by you know, two great oceans uh, from the most dangerous groups, while Israel has the opposite situation. Geography puts very dangerous groups right on its borders.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it more complicated and not simple to say, what should they be doing, because we're sitting here in the United States sipping our $10 lattes and telling Israel what to do when they have their Mexico situation literally across the border. And that's what makes it a, a much more complicated discussion to have. My last question is: Who po- pro- poses the biggest threat to the United States? Is it, is it Russia, China, Iran? Still,
4: I have to be careful because I'm not yeah. an expert on everything in the world. But I would, what, uh, in the long term sense, China at the top of the list. Uh, the United States, thankfully, has not had to deal in its past with an economic peer, with a country that has a U.S. level economy, and I'm sure. Some of your listeners know, there are debates about just how good China's economy is, but it, no question, it's significant, quite different than the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, the government right now is aggressive. Uh, it is clearly hostile to the United States. And this is going to be a persistent problem. So, as bad as Russia is, as bad as Iran is, as dangerous as terrorist groups are, I think it's appropriate that the Trump administration and now the Biden administration have been prioritizing China. Mm-hmm.
0: My real last question is probably one you're not asked often, and I was told by Gabe Hamoud to ask it, so we in the back room, we like to get a window into people's souls. And sometimes the best way to do that is through music. So tell me, Professor Byman, give me your top five musical artists of all time.
4: Oh, gosh. Okay. So there you're catching me by the fries. Uh, I have a love for classical music, and so I'll start there. So I'll put, uh, Prokofiev as one of the people at the top of my list in terms of composers and, there are a range of, uh, Puccini opera pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also put, uh, very, very high on my list, shifting to things that I suspect more of your listeners may be interested in, I have a weakness or a range of kind of more contemporary Americana and folk. So there are a lot of uh, people I could put on that list, but I'll say Patty Griffin yeah. as one possibility. Mm-hmm. And if we want to kind of go more you know, classic, I will always love the Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And then thanks to my younger son, I've actually started country music in the last few years and it's very new to me. So there's a lot I don't know, but I've come to enjoy Miranda Lambert quite a bit. Mm, okay. So it's a new genre for me and I have a lot. you got one left. Oh, gosh, I do. Okay. You know what? I have been won over by succession students to saying that, you know, Taylor Swift, although her movie uh, is not at the very top of my list. Uh, she really bravo. For, for her game. So I will I will quit round the list as well as someone very.
0: All right. Well, we didn't solve the world's problems, but we we definitely showed some love for Tay Tay. So that's that's <laughs> really what the back room is all about. Professor Byman, this was fascinating. I hope you'll come back and and keep talking with us because certainly the world's problems are not going away, so there'll be a lot to talk
4: about. It would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood and your own backyards and have a great week.